the latest in agricultural media, and some smart conversation. This is the Ag Communicators Network Podcast. Welcome to the Ag Communicators Network Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Navarra. At the 2021 Ag Media Summit, past president Gil Gullickson was recognized as Writer of the Year. In this episode, he'll talk about what it takes to create an award-winning piece, something that he has done year after year. Today, he's going to talk about the technique he used to create an award-winning piece from 2020 titled Yours, Mine, and Ours that won the International Federation of Agricultural Journalists Award. So every story begins with an idea. What inspired you to um, cover the topic that became yours, mine, and ours? Uh, I think one of the uh, the unique things about uh, we have a successful farming is we have a very uh, innovative environment where we're encouraged always to look for different kind of story ideas, um, you know, just... uh, different ways to cover things, unique ways, unique layouts, those kinds of things. We have really good editorial leadership in our editorial content director, Dave Kearns, and also our group publisher, Scott Mortimer, and they they really set the tone for us. Um, so how the story started is uh, one of the areas that I cover is digital agriculture, just, um, you know, the gathering of data that can be put into uh, programs using algorithms, um, you know, to find uh, to help farmers choose the best kind of seed uh, that they have, just uh, fields to make sure you plant the right seed on the uh, the right field. And I was in a meeting uh, that their crop science had where they talked about their field view product and they had a new product they were launching called Seed Advisor, where they just took all the different data points so they could come out to the farmer and say, well, according to our records, which are calculated by algorithms, these are the three best hybrids of ours that you could plant on the field. And that just kind of struck me as kind of an interesting approach. So after that meeting, we had an territorial planning meeting and I pitched something like digital agriculture uh, goes mainstream and it was accepted as a story. So I had the story and um, I, for several months, I was working on other things, but then I went to another meeting at the uh, end of February in 2019 at the Commodity Classic in Florida, and there was a presentation by Bayer, and one of their executives spoke, and in her speech, she made some reference to, we want to share with the farmer in the good times and the bad. And for some reason, that just kind of caught my attention. What did she mean by that? Mm-hmm. So one night, I think it was a Friday night, uh, before uh, the end of the show, we had a uh, ag editor's reception with NAMA. And, um, you know, at the end of the meeting, um, I just kind of went and I got a Subway sandwich. And I went back to my room and I kicked back and I went over my notes for the meeting. And that just kind of struck me because when she said that, I bolded it immediately in my notes. And, you know, one of the 
I don't do it with every story, but something like this, I always share the story about Lamar Hunt. He was uh, actually the founder of the American Football League, which merged into the National Football League in 1970. Mm. And he had a really interesting background in that his father, H.L. Hunt, he was like the filthiest rich of all the filthy rich Texas oil men back in the day. And he even wrote a book, I think it was called Alpaca, where he theorized that the rich should have more votes than the poor. But his son Lamar, he, he wasn't into being a fancy right-wing philosopher or filthy rich oil man at all. In fact, he was an undersized end on the football team at Southern Methodist University who hardly got in a game. He sat on the end of the bench most of the time, but he just wanted a football team. And back then in the late 50s, those old bulls that owned the National Football League teams, they didn't want to give him one. So one day he was uh, on a United Airlines flight, and he got out United Airlines stationery and a pen. So he starts penciling out the formation of the American Football League, how many teams to have, certain rules, how are they, they were going to compete against the NFL, what cities, what have you. So he gets all fired up. He gets off the plane, and he tells no one just mm. keeps it to himself for about a year. And then, you know, he was, he, he just kind of wanted the timing to be right. So he talked with a lot of folks of oil money, trucking money and insurance money. And that's how the American football league was formed. Eight original teams. And no one knows who Lamar Hunt is now, but had it been not been for him, there would have been, no New England Patriots, there would have been no Tom Brady, no Bill Belichick playing for the Patriots. For the Kansas City Chiefs, which he eventually became the owner of, would have been no Patrick Mahomes and no Super Bowl championship for him last year. And I guess when I have a story like this, when I'm not exactly sure what way it's, it's going, but I got a hunch, I just keep those things to myself. And I just kind of keep gradually getting more information because I have no idea where the story's going to go. And I, you know, it might be a story, it, it might not. So I just kind of, not on every story, but on a story like this, I just kind of keep it to myself. And I talk, keep talking with sources uh, confidentially about, about the topic until they're ready to talk. And that's what happened with this story that um, the digital agriculture was just a piece of a strategy the bear had called outcome-based pricing where they would, in effect, guarantee a certain metric such as the yield. And if the yield was below that, bear would make up the difference to the farmer. And at that time, if it uh, got above that metric, they wanted to share in, in the extra yield. Now, currently, that, that's just one of the options they're looking at. They're looking at a number of, of different options. Um, you know, in this. So it's kind of like anything new. It's a pilot project and they're testing it, but that was new. That had not been talked about before. And that was the, the big hook in the store. I think the challenge was, and I mean, it's their strategy, it's their company, but you had to, uh, you know, you had to, had to work with them and touch bases with them periodically as to how much they were going to say. And finally on, uh, I think it was on August 2nd, they had a uh, field day at Jerseyville, Illinois at a bear site, and they were ready to talk then. So I interviewed the person who uh, was spearheading the project and really got them to talk about the program and 
what they wanted to do. And after that, I went back to Des Moines. I pieced it together with some of the interviews I did with farmers and, and other companies who were thinking about following similar strategies and put the piece together. That's interesting. In this day and age where it seems like there's always a rush to get more content out, sometimes, um, you know, the biggest stories are the ones that evolve over a lengthy period of time. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the goals that I've set for myself in a year or two is just to be a better listener. And I think, you know, I, I do it myself. I mean, when we go to meetings, I mean, I tweet out things. But for that speech, I just listened to what the bear executive was saying. And I'm not very good at multitasking that way. When I'm tweeting something, I just have to concentrate on tweeting and make sure I get all the words spelled correctly. And I'm not listening to what the person is currently saying. So I'm, and there are probably people who can, can do both, but I can't. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about the um, writing technique you use and the approach to telling the story. Um, you said that you're given, you know, a lot of latitude there at Successful Farming. You know, how did you come to this particular technique and what made you think that it was right for the reporting that you had done? Uh, I think on this one, you know, when I look back at a big story, you know, there's always something I would probably change. But the only thing I'd change on this one is I may have cut down the lead just a, a few words just to get the reader into the story. But for me, the big the big hook was um, wouldn't it be great if you could plant a hybrid or do a certain practice and if it didn't work, get the money back. And you know, I said, these days you might be able to, according to this program, it was a really easy lead to write. And, and that way I want to get right into the story and also put some, I think the big thing that uh, really caught a lot of attention at that meeting in Jerseyville, Illinois, I knew what, uh, what the CEO of Bear was talking about with outcome-based pricing because uh, there had actually been a story a couple of years later on the web that I don't think anyone caught, but my former coworker at Successful Farming, Casey Birchmeyer, she was at a bear event where Liam Condon, the uh, CEO of Bear, talked about outcome-based pricing. And it was in somewhat vague terms, but she was on it. And when I did research, I would type in bear outcome-based pricing. And hers was, it was just a short web story, but hers was the only one that came up. So I kind of, I, I knew that was the hook. And when I was at that meeting in Jerseyville, Illinois, when Mr. Condon was talking about the program, I sent out a couple tweets on it, um, just what they were thinking about. And most of the time, my tweets, they just don't get that much traffic. Maybe I'm just too boring on that, but oh, that just lit up. And it's, it's really interesting to see the way direction that Twitter takes it i mean it just goes all over and i've never gotten any reaction to a couple of tweets just like that um so i, I knew it was that was the hook and also the uh the thing that uh really made the story different was uh, just the uh fact that there might be some revenue sharing involved if you got above that certain metric. And I know some of the people who commented on Twitter, they were okay with it. And others would say, no, there's no way I would ever share 
extra yield. So that was at that time that was kind of the uh, controversial hook on it. And since then, I know they're there looking at several several different options where that may or may not uh, may not be. I mean, it's a pilot project. They're still ironing out things, but that was that was you know another hook in there and. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think one of the things too. I uh, when I was in college, I used to work on a ranch, and the ranch manager Barry Dunn is now president of South Dakota State University. But he always told me about the cattle industry that you know outside of you know calving season where you have to be with the cow and you know make sure that she delivers the calf okay. And if there's calving difficulties, I mean if you have Hereford cows, you can always throw in some Angus bulls to uh, ease calving difficulties. And, you know, if you have a lame cow, you treat her. If a calf has pink eye, you treat it. But he always said compared to crop farming, I mean, outside of treating your cattle and making sure they get shelter when the weather is bad, you just kind of got to watch the markets. And there's not that much risk. But with crop farming, oh, God, you just have all the inputs. You have the seed, you have the chemical, you have the machinery, you need the insurance in case you get tailed out, you can get drought, you can get flooded out, you just have tons of risk. And that played into the story because this is really a risk management strategy that that Bear has. And it may not appeal to that farmer who's 60 years old and has everything paid for, but for that younger farmer who's 35 who bought the quarter next to him for uh, she or he for a high price that may have stretched their finances, but it was the only time in their lifetimes it was going to come out. Having a risk tool like this could be a good option for them or an attractive option. So I tried to position the story that way, that although it might not be for everyone, from a risk management standpoint, it's something to look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was what I was I thought was interesting, was reading through the article um, and getting you know through the the description of the program and then into some of the personal perspectives, um, they definitely were varied as to their willingness to accept them. I think uh, one thing I try to do on a story that too is just always get the farmer's uh, view on it. So I was fortunate enough to have several sources that I uh, was able to interview for the story and they really added a lot of perspective. I always talk a lot about getting the dirt under the fingernails approach and these are the guys they're doing the farming they're writing out the checks for the seed for the chemical those kinds of things so i think it's important to get that farmer perspective on it Mm -hmm. absolutely and what advice would you have for other writers when they think about the story structure or technique that they're going to use in the article that they're working on I remember uh, last year about this time, there was a movie that came out called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it was about Hollywood set in 1969. And there was a scene early in the movie where uh, Robert De Niro, he's playing a old time Hollywood uh, kingmaker. And Leonard DiCaprio is this kind of washed up movie star who's trying to get back in the business. And Robert De Niro was talking about the, movies that the Leonard DiCaprio character was making and he talked about this war movie and the Robert De Niro character he went oh I just loved all the shooting all the killing (laughs) Leonard DiCaprio (laughs) character he just kind of smiles and says yep a lot of killing (laughs) and 
you know, really, when it comes to writing a story like this, where you just have all these different sources and, and such, there's a lot of killing. I mean, yeah. there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of killing of words, a lot of killing of quotes, a lot of killing of paragraphs just to boil it down. Because, you know, on a story like this, I don't know, I suppose, you know, it might have ran like 2,500 to 3,000 words, maybe closer to 3,000. Shoot at my original notes, you know, I probably have 10 times that. And like 90% of it is just pure, you know, trash. I mean, it is, it doesn't relate to the story. I mean, you, if a person says the same thing three times, just go with what he or she says once. And that's where a lot of killing comes in. And I know I had one uh, editor in another publication, uh, Pam Smith for DTM Progressive Farmer. She always makes the comment that an editor told her once that when you have a lot more on the cutting room floor than you do in the story, that means you've done a good job writing it. So I'd say just, uh, you know, concentrate on, on what's important in the story. And, you know, another thing I do, too, not in every story, but on this one, I think back to the neighborhood I grew up in, northeastern South Dakota. And, you know, it sounds kind of corny, but I think about my old neighbors who farmed in the neighborhood. And I always ask myself, well, what would Gilbert Bistadu want to know about this story? Or Joe Tunheim or Chet Hansen or George Hansen or Eldred Fussell or her foot. And, you know, it sounds kind of corny, but yeah, I really do that, you know, because I, I just want to know what they would want to know. And kind of like I'm explaining, explaining the concept to them and um, stories like that. I still follow that. Mm. Well, it is, it all does come down to what the reader wants to know. And I'm sure it's helpful to think through that, you know, when any of us sit down to write whatever project we're working on. Yeah, yeah. I think one thing that kind of helps too on a major story like this, I remember uh, before I wrote it, I had my uh, editor, Dave Kearns, take a look at it and also a coworker of mine, Bill Spiegel, who also farms in Kansas. And they were able to give some really good constructive criticism. They were able to find some holes in stories, some things I, I didn't think of. So if, if you can do it, I mean, it sure pays to have someone else look at the story and um, you know give pointers I don't really do that at the start of the story just because something like this um, I think early on you can one of the advice I give to readers just try and block out all the noise I mean there's a lot of stuff going on, on Twitter and social media and those kinds of things I mean Twitter is a great tool but there's a lot of noise on it too so when I'm on, a, on this story I just kind of went at my own pace and followed my own instincts and wrote it. And for me, it's very helpful to get that advice after the fact, because I probably have 95% of it covered, but there's always those 5% holes that pop up. And mm -hmm. that's where it helps me to have other folks look at it. Sometimes I feel like you just kind of get an instinct in your gut that you know a story is going to be special and has potential to be an award winner. Um, did you have any sense of that when you wrote this story or did it, were you pleasantly surprised when it came out the winner? You know, like, it's funny, like I entered the same story in a group I belong to, the North American Ag Journalist, and I think I entered like six stories in that contest and 
one of them got a first, another one got a third, three got honorable mention, and this one didn't even place. <laughs> and then I enter it, this contest and it wins. It just, these writing contests, they're just all over the, all over the board. You just never know. But I think the thing that, uh, I, I knew it was a good story because it was something new that really hadn't been discussed in the agricultural press before. So I, I knew that it probably had a, a good chance. Um, I think too, the and you can't do it with every story, but in this story, it started out, and I think other stories have been about like digital agriculture, you know, how it's great, how it does this, how it does that. But in this case, digital agriculture is just a tool that's used in this strategy of outcome-based pricing. You know, it's it's the tool, it's a means to an end. And that was something kind of different about this, that, you know, it started out as a technology story, but it ended up a lot being economics and management and ended up as, a, in addition to a technology story, also as a risk management tool, so, or a story. So I kind of knew that, that there was something about this story that was, different and in this case it uh it caught the eye of the judges but that's not a given um boy you can have you know i could enter the story in another contest that it just might not even get mentioned so i think it depends depends a lot on how it hits the judges too sure when i'm not writing i compete in different horse shows and that's the one thing that we always have to keep in mind is it's the judge's opinion on that day um, and that judge could have a different opinion of you the next day or the judge sitting next to them, you know, scoring too could have a different opinion. And it, sometimes it can get hard to remember that, but really it boils down to somebody's opinion at that moment. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, I've always kind of noticed in writing, especially the contest, there's two schools of thought. Like there's one, like this story where you get right into the story to say it's going to do this and that and then there's other stories and other styles that i write um i guess an example i just story on soil health tests which uh i mean i'm not taking it away from the test i mean there's some tremendous science and some tremendous individuals out there but a topic like soil health tests it's probably not going to grab the attention right away of the reader if you just say yep these are soil health tests here's what they do so I was talking to one of my uh, sources about it. She said, you know, on soil health, I just know it when I see it. You know, if you have this deep, rich, black soil that's just teeming with organic matter and, you know, earthworms, I know it's a good soil. So it kind of reminded me of a story. There was a uh, U.S. Supreme Court justice by the name of Potter Stewart, who served on the uh, court, I think Dwight Eisenhower pointed him in 1958. And, I think he probably stepped out in the early 80s, but he uh, was ruling on this. It was a pornography case in 1964, and he had this line about pornography that, well, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And I thought that could just work its way into, you know, soil health. You can't really define it, but you know what? When you see it so i started off with a lead like that and i think it was pretty successful i think it was something different and i think i got the uh the reader into the story and there's judges who will probably just hate it i know one of my sources who uh ran a soil health test lab he sent me an email and he said oh i just hate it how dare you bring pornography into this <laughs> <laughs> well it really wasn't about pornography 
pornography, but right. it was kind of a way to get into the subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's all kinds of different ways. There's all kinds of different ways to get into a story. So I guess my advice is just don't get locked into what he any style or that. You know, you just just depends on a lot on the individual story. I think that's a lot of great advice. Thinking back to what we've talked about, you recommend that you know people listen um, to what's going on and tune out some of the noise. Um, and I think that's great advice as well. Is there anything you'd like to add as a wrap up piece of advice to writers as they get started on their next project? Oh, I'd say one thing about, you know, within the Ag Communicators Network is we just have tremendous uh, sources, you know. Um, I mean, I look at these folks like, you know, Jim Patrico, he just had an article about photography. I mean, I, I mean, geez, there are people who would pay gold bars to get advice from Jim Patrico, and by being a member, it's free <laughs> about photography and also about writing. So, personally, I'm always kind of flattered when someone comes up and asks me about writing or, you know, if they show me a story and what I could have done differently. I'm flattered when they do that, that they think enough of me to do that. So I would say, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to people on your staff who might be willing to uh, to help you because, I mean, you know, like myself, I'm constantly looking at other writers in, within the Ag Communicators Network to uh, to get ideas on how to how to how to better ourselves. Um, the neat thing about the Ag Communicators Network compared to a lot of other trade magazines is the focus point is on professional improvement. I mean, we have a professional improvement fund that funds workshops, funds trips the members can take advantage of, but the uh, Agricultural Media Summit, which will be held in Kansas City on the 14th through the 18th, they're top full of professional improvement. Uh, seminars on writing, photography, uh, digital podcasts, video making, TV, those kinds of things. So I would sure encourage uh, members to take advantage of those types of things. Yeah, it's always good to be working, you know, to improve and see how we can learn from others as things continue to evolve. I mean, the, the basics are always the basics, but there's always new ways of looking at things and trying, you know, different presentations and things like that. I think one thing too is um, the importance of finding a mentor, someone you can trust. And in my case, in successful farming, I was lucky enough to sit by the crops and soils editor, Rich B. We sat next to each other. And, uh, you know, the neat thing about Rich, he retired in 2012 after 32 years of the crops and soils editor. And, you know, he had as much enthusiasm and interest in the crops and soils area in 2012 as he did in 1980 um you know so he was always uh always a good mentor and always a guiding force to me um he had some really interesting you know what i call maxims he would uh, say you know the bottom line of the story is tell me what i don't know and how it'll make me money and i always add better my family life Mm -hmm. so he always kept me with that and another kind of funny story he'd always tell was whenever there was a new product being introduced a new chemical or a seed he'd talk about like well you know they come out and they talk about this product and you know they're saying oh it can do this and it can do that and he said all i see are problems 
And it would make me a terrible salesperson or a marketing person, but it served me very well in farming and in agricultural journalism, just to kind of find the chinks. And, you know, obviously you want to embrace technology, you want to embrace new products, but you want to make sure that it pays on your farm because there's a, a lot of different technologies and products that are being pitched out there, but they can't all fit your farm. And I think that's that's the role of agricultural journalists is helping uh, give information to farmers about what will work on their farm and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. That's always my favorite part of getting to report in person is to just see how each farm adapts what's out there and, you know, takes pieces of what they've learned to make sure that it really fits with their operation. And sometimes you see a really unique combination of, you know, different pieces of technology um, and they are some of the most innovative people out there. Uh, I know I had one story uh, last year that ran in July 2019. It was about a uh, new type of herbicide weed resistance called metabolic resistance. And bottom line is this metabolic resistance. It can render a herbicide site of action even before it's useless, even before it's been invented, just within the plant. And, one of the farmers I interviewed, Chad Lehman, uh, he farms near uh, in the Peoria area of Illinois. He goes out and he cultivates certain fields uh, where he thinks he might have a resistance problem, but he'll get his uh, kids to go out and walk beans and he'll kind of joke. It's a character building exercise, but mm -hmm. it's kind of neat because I mean, he's just this really tech savvy farmer. He also has a thriving hog operation, very ultra modern farmer, but he's using, you know, cultivation in, in some cases, which has been used for decades. He has utilizes roguing soybeans, walking soybeans, pulling weeds that's as old as agriculture itself. So I think you're right that on these farms, I mean, there's there's a mix of very high technology, but there's also some low technologies too that are still being used effectively. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you joining me today. I think this is, you know, what I was hoping we could share with members about um, you know, your approach to writing yours, mine, and ours, and, and how, you know, you kind of thought through that process, reported on it, and wrote it. And, you know, again, congratulations on your, your award through the IFAJ. Oh, well, thank you very much. This has been an Ag Communicators Network podcast. Thanks for listening. And please visit us online at agcomnetwork.com for more great content.